Well, the Puritan Thomas Watson once said, Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. Close quote. And not to disagree with Thomas Watson entirely, but the way I would bring the holiness of God to your attention this morning is by changing that statement just a little. And instead, have you think of God's holiness as the whole of his crown? Holiness is the crown of God, and it is accentuated by the sparkling jewels, which are the sum of his attributes. In other words, we should look at the holiness of God as something more than just an attribute. Holiness is the sum of his perfections. In everything that God is, he is holy. And there are three primary ways in which I would bring the holiness of God to your understanding. And so I have divided this text into three main headings as we consider the holiness of God as it being his transcendence, his moral purity, and as it being a communicable attribute. So notice the first heading with me, God's holiness is his transcendence meaning it sets god apart he is above all and independent of all things but more than that he is altogether in a separate and unique category above all and that is the view of god's holiness that isaiah is confronted with first uh, we read in verse one in the year that king uzziah died i saw the lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Let's stop right there. Isaiah was a prophet during the reigns of four kings of Judah. Kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. His ministry began during the time of Uzziah. King Uzziah reigned for 52 years, and he was only 16 when he became king of Judah. And in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 4 and 5, we read this of King Uzziah, quote, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Close quote. Uzziah came to have the reputation of a beloved king. Judah prospered while under his reign. It became a powerful military state. In verse 8 and following, still in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we read, The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, where he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war. Close quote. So Judah prospered under his reign, but the power and prosperity finally got to his pride and consumed him. 
You may recall how his reign ended. In his pride, he marched into the temple of the Lord with the intent to burn incense upon the incense, a function which had been reserved and permissible only to the priests. And when he did that, about the priests of whom we are told were valor withstood him and warned him to leave and not do what he had come to do in the temple. But he became angry. And when he became angry, the Lord struck him with leprosy on his face, and he remained a leper until his death. This was a traumatic event in the life of Judah. It always is, isn't it? When a leader who is otherwise beloved, who had a flourishing administration or ministry, has some sort of moral fall. Now, we don't experience this much as Americans. We unfortunately do see it in the church more than anything. But as a nation, we don't have monarchs who reign for years on out. We have presidents with short terms. And some of them have had some moral failures even in their short terms. Who could forget Clinton? He was on his second term when the news of his adultery broke out and shook the nation. Only five years into his administration. And this was during a time of peace. And it shook the nation. Uzziah was a warrior king. He was victorious in battle. With a lengthy reign. And when he fell to his pride, you can probably imagine that the kingdom was in deep mourning. Especially when he died. Because that was the end of his legacy. There was no further hope of repentance, of a repentance that could lead to a restoration of, of that king. It was the end. That hope was now gone. And it was in this climate, during this time, the king has died, the unknowns of tomorrow are closing in on the horizon, that Isaiah is supernaturally given this vision. He is, as it were, taken up to the throne room of God itself. And is previewed to the majesty and splendor that is the holiness of God. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. There is no throne that is higher. His throne is above all thrones. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His kingdom transcends all other kingdoms. And this is magnified further when Isaiah sees that the train of his royal robe filled the whole temple. Uh, this brings to mind the immensity and the sovereignty of God. He is everywhere present in the fullness of His kingship. But as to His holiness, it showed Isaiah how far and exalted this king is above all others. From the way that we see Isaiah in the Scriptures, he had ready access to kings and high-ranking government officials. He was in the inner circles, if you would. But never could he have imagined being in the presence of such a king. The length of the train of his robe alone signifies his power, his grandeur and might. He too is a warrior king, but one who has never been conquered by any. But on the contrary, we read of him in Proverbs 21 and verse 1. 
The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. This king is in a class all to himself. He holds the hearts of all the kings on the earth in his hand. He is set apart from all others. And still more that proves that there is no king on earth who has angelic beings at his service. Back in our text in verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the word for holy literally means to set apart. To set apart. And so while the first thing that might come to our minds when we hear the word holy might be moral uprightness or something along those lines, while it does include that, it is not just that. It is first and foremost a set apartness or separateness that should come to mind. God is set apart by his very nature above all of his creation. And so it is a transcendent holiness. And this is why the angels don't even look at him. They sing aloud the hymn of heaven, what is often often referred to as the Trisagion, meaning the thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And these angels do so while covering their faces and their feet. Their feet being the lowest part of their body as a sign of respect and reverence and recognition of their own creatureliness. And as far as them covering their faces, you may recall how Moses would shine so bright after meeting with God that he had to veil his face because the people were afraid. Likewise, in Matthew 17, we read of our Lord's transfiguration. You might recall he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And then we read in Matthew 17, verse 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is God's holiness in visible display. Psalm 96.9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And so even the sinless angels that live in service of and in the presence of the crown shield their eyes because it is a majestic splendor. And so this holiness on display, I believe, would consume them if they dared to even take a look. It is for this reason and in this sense why God told Moses in Exodus 33.20 when Moses asked to see his glory, that God replied, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. That Revelation 1.16 describes our Lord's face as being like the sun shining in full strength. You may also remember Paul's experience that led to his conversion while on the road to Damascus. He was blinded for days. And so we see that that, that where men have seen the holiness of God in display, there have been different 
varying degrees. God himself has veiled the fullness of his majestic glory in such circumstances as these. So that men would not be completely destroyed by it. Verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Again. Isaiah is confronted with the separateness or transcendence that is God's holiness. This was not like the voice of any man that he had ever heard. This was an otherworldly voice. It was a thunderous voice that shook the foundations of the thresholds. Isaiah had no knowledge of modern day megachurch worship bands that can do the same with their amplification. Right? I mean, there was no amplification back then. This was mere power behind the voice of God. It carried with it this perceived august supremacy. And the smoke that filled the room was the smoke that would often fill the place where God would meet with Moses. We read the same in Exodus 19.18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so this holiness is first a display of his other beingness, his transcendent perfections above and independent of the created order. And you can see this definition of holiness to set apart, play out in other things that we see being called holy in the scriptures that don't carry the idea of morality, but just a consecra uh, consecration, a setting apart for God's purposes. So for example, in Genesis 2-3, we read of the Sabbath, right? So, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. A day has no morality. It is inanimate. But the Sabbath was made holy by God, meaning it was set apart unto God. The same with the Ark of the Covenant. It was set apart unto God. It was holy. And it came with consequences if handled inappropriately. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, we see the Philistines are returning the ark after having it in their possession for seven months. And during which time the Lord severely afflicted them for it. And even as they're in the process of returning it, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They looked upon it, and he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Close quote. And so a number of things are called, are, are called holy. Not out of morality, but because they have been set apart unto 
God. Another example would be the ground. When Moses comes to the burning bush and God tells him, take off your sandals. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. There was nothing moral or special of the ground in in and of itself. But for that time when God manifested his presence on it, it was set apart unto him. It became holy ground. And so you see holiness refers to God's transcendence. But it does also refer to his moral purity. And so notice our second heading this morning, moral purity. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then in verse 5, Isaiah says next, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You can imagine the boldness that Isaiah would have had after seeing this vision. Right, The kingdom of Judah is in mourning. He was probably in mourning. But now he has seen the king of the universe seated on his throne. Right, He was reminded that God is in control. He was seated. He was in session. He was reminded. Uh, he was, God was reminding Isaiah that his rule was current. He was still the king over Judah regardless of whether they had a good earthly king or not. That must have been a very comforting thought. After he had a chance to think about it and process past the trauma of the event. Because comfort wasn't his initial response. He didn't respond as if he was thinking about the sovereignty of God or the power of God or the goodness of God. He didn't fall down on his face and worshiping, thinking about the sovereignty of God. Rather, the overwhelming sense that he felt primarily and the reaction that followed was that he fell on his face terrified. He was terrified. Because it is only by looking at the holiness of God, beloved, that any human being can then see their own sinfulness clear as day. And so holiness does also refer to God's moral uprightness, the purity of his moral perfections. Thomas Watson also said, quote, God's holiness consists in his perfect love of righteousness and abhorrence of evil, close quote. Habakkuk 113 says, you who are pure, who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Romans 7 verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous and good. Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Why is the law of the Lord perfect and an excellent mirror that shows us our sin? Why is the law called holy, righteous, and good? Because the law is merely 
a representation of God's very nature, his moral uprightness and perfection. And there is no greater way for us to see our own sin than by seeing our righteousness or lack thereof in comparison to the perfect purity of the holy God of the universe. And that's why Isaiah falls terrified on his face. And I do prefer the way the King James and the NASB read. Instead of I am lost, they say I am undone or I am ruined. He is at once confronted with this overwhelming attribute of God, His holiness. And it is interesting to note that the, of the significance of the repetition here. Holy, holy, holy. Theologians have referred to this as God's exaltation to the superlative degree. This repetition of a word successively was a literary device used to emphasize. So while we might put a big exclamation point where we want to emphasize something, or emojis nowadays, they would repeat. And so you may recall the many times Jesus would say something and start out by saying, truly, truly. I say unto you, that meant it was more important than normal, and you better listen to what is about to be said. And so here, when the angels proclaim that God is holy, 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 it is taking that one statement to the highest degree possible. He is more than just holy. He is the holy of holies. He is, as Job 6.10 puts it, the holy one. And it is also interesting to note that there is no other attribute of God that is spoken in this degree with this level of emphasis. Not even God is love. But God is holy, holy, holy. And so Isaiah is confronted by this reality. He stares into the perfect purity and perfection that is God. And in an instant... He sees and understands the depths of his own depravity and proclaims, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. In that one sentence, he proclaims both the depths of his depravity and ours. Because he realizes where we all stand in relation to this thrice holy God. He speaks of his lips being unclean, meaning there is nothing that can come out of his mouth that is clean. Nothing that can justify him before a holy God. Jesus in Matthew 12 in verses 34 and 35 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And so Isaiah saw the reality that Ecclesiastes speaks of in chapter 7, verse 29, where it says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man without sin. But because of Adam, we have all fallen. And so as Isaiah will later say in chapter 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. 
And so not only did Isaiah realize that he had unclean lips, that he couldn't say a thing before this holy God to even give an excuse, he also realized that he lived amongst the people that are all exactly like him. And that's us to this day, beloved. Every single one of us is born and are dead in our sins and trespasses before God does a work in our hearts. And it is an utterly foolish thing and heartbreaking thing to hear when someone says something like, you shouldn't judge me. God will be my judge. Right? I mean, people think that they can live however they want and somehow they will stand before this king of kings and try to fool him into thinking that they were good people because they did this and that and not this and that. Right? We don't kill people. I haven't committed any armed robberies or held anybody at gunpoint. All they ever did, they say, never harmed anyone. But beloved, that's what you get when you compare your sins to the sins of others. That's not the conclusion you come to when you look at your sins in the light of the pure, perfect, and transcendent holiness of God. The standard which we will be held to is perfection because God is perfect. And so standing where we stand, without God intervening, there is no hope. We all stand guilty and deserving of eternal punishment. That's what had to go through Isaiah's mind. That's what we see happening here. Left to fend for himself, Isaiah would have had no hope of salvation. Because God is holy. And His holiness, and His holiness demands perfection. Because that's what God's holiness is. His transcendent purity. As some theologians have more succinctly put it. His transcendent purity. And so God is both transcendent and morally pure. That is what it means that He is holy. But here's the last thing I want to bring to your attention about the holiness of God. God's holiness is communicable. Communicable. In theology, we make the distinction between incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes of God. Incommunicable attributes are qualities that belong to God alone. So He alone is eternal. He alone is ase, meaning self-existent and self-sustaining. Incommunicable attributes are those that can be reflected in us in some measure due to the fact that He has made us in His image. And so the goodness of God the love of God are some attributes that can be reflected in us. And holiness is one of those communicable attributes. 
However, it is only so in part. The transcendent aspect of it belongs to God alone. He alone is the Holy One. He alone is the Holy, Holy, Holy who is above all. He is the source of anything else that has any aspect of holiness. His holiness is not something that can be taken away from His essence. Angels are holy beings, but even they can lose that holiness. And some have fallen away and are no longer holy. And so, God alone is the transcendent holy. Holy intrinsically within Himself, by Himself. But the purity aspect of holiness is communicable. And it is offered as a free gift. This holiness, we are told, is what is necessary to see God in eternal life. Meaning it is necessary for salvation. Hebrews 12.14 tells us to strive, quote, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, close quote. Because everyone who is not in possession of this holiness will suffer the wrath of God. And so, beloved, that's the most important question you could possibly ask yourself this morning. Are you in possession of this holiness? Well, first, know that it was purchased by Jesus, by his blood. He willingly suffered the wrath of God for everyone who will repent and believe in him. Listen to Hebrews 10. Verses 10 through 14. And by that will we have been sanctified. And that's the Greek word for holy there. So you could likewise say, and by that will we have been made holy. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is finished. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified those who will be sanctified, those who have been sanctified, past, present, or future. Anyone who is born again of the Spirit of God is sealed in the promise of perfection by the merit of His once-for-all sacrifice. It is an imputed holiness that God shares willingly with us. Hebrews 12.10 says, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. This is what we refer to as the great exchange. Jesus took upon Himself the punishment due for our sins, and in exchange, God has reckoned to our account the holiness needed to see Him. He made the plan. 
provided the sacrifice. He saves. He shares his holiness. He perfects. He, 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 all to the glory of this holy God. As many theologians have said, the only thing we bring to the table of redemption is the sin that required the plan of redemption to be enacted in the first place. But again, notice that Isaiah was not left to himself. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. But this was a type of Christ, a foreshadow of the power of the gospel. The burning coal representing the power of God to purify as by a refining fire. This whole scene is a picture of Christ's power to cleanse us from our sins. While he remains the thrice holy God. And here's the amazing thing. That Isaiah at this point had not yet realized. But he knows now. This majestic, exalted, powerful king whom he beheld on that day was none other than Jesus himself. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son. It was his being face to face with Christ why he came to these convictions. And it was this Christ who then extended through the angel the coals of his altar with a, purif with a purifying power to cleanse a man from his lips all the way down to his heart. And the Apostle John confirms this for us. In John chapter 12, verses 41 through 43, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. Speaking of Jesus. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Isaiah saw Christ exalted on his throne and was saved, was cleansed, was forgiven by him. May we be a people who love the glory that comes from God more than any fleeting or vain glory that we could possibly get. From man. May we grow in our love and passion for the glory of this holy, holy, holy God. And may we do this, as Hebrews 12 2 says, by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have communicated such marvelous truths to our finite minds. Help us, Lord, to look on Christ, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is holy, 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 and who was willing to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Seal these truths in our heart, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With that thought for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. I just want to share a couple things as we move into this time of communion. As we have heard from Scripture today, we have such a great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us. Amen? Such a great cloud. And communion is a time where we and others testify that no one can ever say yes to Christ without saying no to something else. To say yes to Christ is to say no to something else. In this time of communion, we are reminded to set aside the sin that so easily entangles us. We are called to be holy by God. In fact, we are made holy by God through Jesus Christ. God calls us to set aside those things which so easily ensnare and entangle us. We're to run the race with perseverance. And we are to encourage others to do the same as well. I think of Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stimulate and to love this Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're to run the race with perseverance. Encourage each other. How do we persist? Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that good work until the day of Christ Jesus and prepare you for your eternal destiny. He is your example. And I just think of that last piece in Hebrews where it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 says, Yet it was the will or pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. The finish line for Jesus was the cross. It was the cross of Christ. 
which he came and died for you and I willingly. The cross points to Jesus. And I just want to say today, as we partake of communion, as you, as you partake, communion does not save you, does not rescue you, does not make you right with God. And I just want to say, just invite anyone that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, we invite you to accept the gift that God gave that day in Jesus Christ. To accept him, to accept his death, his burial, his resurrection, to accept his gift for eternal life. By doing so, you just say, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. As Isaiah realized that he was a man of unclean lips and he lived among people of unclean lips, he realized his sinfulness. He realized his need to be rescued. And at that point, one of the angels touched his mouth with a coal and said, you have been redeemed. You have been rescued. You have been restored. Joy, the joy, who for the joy? Joy speaks of our redemption. Joy points to the promised eternity with the Father and with the Son and with all who believe on his name. And I just want to encourage you with that. And as we come together, I'm going to ask uh, Paul if you would take one of the communion deals and just serve anyone in the back. And, uh, uh, and we, ju we just want to invite you forward. And, and uh, one of the things uh, that we want you to understand as you come forward and you participate, you're going to take the cup and the bread. The bread signifies his, the gift of his sacrifice. Jesus Christ died for you. This represents his body. He said, this blood represents a new covenant of my blood, in my blood. His blood was shed, as it says in Hebrews, for the remission of sin. This is the only way that you and I are forgiven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just want to encourage you with that as you partake together. For the rest of you, as you come forward and partake together, we just invite you to come and come as a family and just share together in recognizing as a church, we identify, we proclaim Jesus Christ's death until he comes again. So just going to encourage as we take our places. Uh, uh, Daryl will be taking this, this station over here and I will be over here. Just come forward. And Tom and Jason will be singing a song. And I just want you to know that, just encourage you that, that as in, in 1 Corinthians says that to examine yourselves, know for sure that you are a child of the king. Know for sure that you are right with God. Take time. Take time to make things right with God, right where you are. Set aside the sin which so easily entangles you. Take this time.